0: Hey again, it's Scott Simmy here. Now, if you're a subscriber, you already knew that. But if this is your first time, welcome to Inside Stories. Now today, I'd like you to imagine something. Pretend you live in a country with an infrastructure that needs some work. Now, further imagine you've been bitten by a highly poisonous snake. You get to the hospital, but they don't have any anti-venom handy, and the nearest anti-venom is simply too far for anyone to drive it to you. Your heart is pounding, the poison is spreading, and the clock is ticking. Will you survive? This really happened recently, though obviously I'm talking about someone else, and today's guest was responsible for the outcome. Today on Inside Stories, I'm joined by Keller Renato, who's in San Francisco. Keller, welcome. Thanks for having me. Keller is the founder and CEO of a company that I tremendously admire, and I've been following for many years now. It's called Zipline and it operates in two African countries, Rwanda and Ghana, and will soon be doing testing in the United States. Keller, tell us what it is that Zipline does for people who aren't aware of the company.
1: Zipline is a healthcare logistics company that uses autonomous aircraft to deliver a wide variety of medical products instantly to hospitals and health facilities.
0: So when you say autonomous aircraft, we're talking about what some people might think of as as drones. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I think most people when they think of a drone, they think of uh, like a, a small quadcopter that hovers like a helicopter and takes pictures. What we build are, um, they look a lot more like airplanes, they weigh about 40 pounds and can fly up to 300 kilometers in a single direction. Uh, so these are sort of a, a different class of drone um, that's specifically designed in every way to enable healthcare systems and big logistics systems to deliver things um, as quickly and efficiently as the internet delivers information.
0: What kind of things do you deliver in these in these vehicles
1: today uh, across Rwanda and Ghana, we deliver about one hundred and sixty different medical products so it's essentially the entire public health supply chain so that varies from blood products like platelets, plasma, cryoprecipitates, and pack red blood cells to vaccines uh, to uh, rabies prophylaxis to cancer treatments. So essentially, everything that you would get at a primary care facility or hospital can be delivered in this
0: way. And why in Rwanda or Ghana? Why are these ideal locations in some ways for this kind of a project to to be operating?
1: Well, we we started by delivering in. We started by delivering uh, to about twenty one different hospitals in Rwanda in twenty sixteen. And the reason that we started in Rwanda was that we had. Uh, a close relationship with the Ministry of Health, and they were really, really eager to improve generally blood logistics throughout the country. And believe it or not, blood logistics is really hard in every single country on earth, including in the U.S. Uh, It's complicated for a lot of different reasons. You have many different types of blood, A, B, A, B, O. Uh, You have different, uh, different components like platelets and precipitates, And platelets only last six days, for example. So it's really kind of a nightmare when it comes to figuring out how to get the right product at the right place at the right time. And it's also a product that's really important for family health. Uh, 50% of the transfusions that we deliver today are going toward moms with postpartum hemorrhaging, and 30% are going toward kids under the age of five. So this is a product that when you need it, you really, really need it, and you can't anticipate it beforehand. So that was the reason you know, we, we we had a close relationship with the Ministry of Health. The country was really leaning forward in terms of technology and infrastructure and making investments to the public health care system. And by working with them, we were able to serve essentially every hospital and health facility in the country. So those were all big advantages of getting started in Rwanda compared to, for example, what we're doing now. You know, So, so it, it was four years later that we launched in the U.S., in North Carolina uh, doing deliveries for a similar hospital system, uh, Navon Healthcare. So it, it, it took a while to go from you know, the, the small scale of, of Rwanda to the much bigger scale of the US.
0: In a location like Rwanda or Rwanda specifically, what sort of time advantage is there in terms of dispatching something with an autonomous vehicle by air, as opposed to whatever local delivery mechanism would be available on ground?
1: I mean, typically it's going to, and this is true in any country. Uh, you know, one, one of the misconceptions when people think about Rwanda is they say, oh, it must be useful in Rwanda because there are no roads. And that's actually not really accurate. I mean, they're, all the hospitals we serve in Rwanda have pretty good roads to every single one of them. Um, but even so, uh, especially over mountainous terrain, and Rwanda is a very mountainous country, uh, it takes a long time getting places on the roads. So we're typically reaching a hospital or a health facility somewhere between three and 10 times as fast as the fastest emergency courier delivery. And keep in mind, emergency courier deliveries usually aren't available. Uh, so when a, when a patient is at a hospital and their life is on the line and they need something, this kind of a system is by far the most cost-effective, responsive, and reliable way of saving that person's life.
0: There are a lot of things that the drones can do, and there are a lot of products that drones can deliver. Why was it that you were interested in setting this up in Africa, where there would be undoubtedly more logistical difficulties than you would face, say in the United States, what was it about this mission that, that appealed to you?
1: You know, it was pretty obvious to us, uh, starting, you know, it's, it's something in like 2012 or 2013 that there was this big opportunity to build an automated logistics system for the planet. We kind of had a sense for where robotics and autonomy and, and, and uh, software development was generally going. And, and this seemed like something really big that humanity was going to need to build. Uh, but for us, you know, from a mission perspective, the reason we were really, really excited about the potential to do that was we were pretty confident that this was going to be a chance to build the first logistics system that would serve all humans equally. The reality is I think that you know, the, the dark secret of a lot of what's been going on over, the, over how logistics has grown over the last couple centuries is that it serves the rich, but not the poor. And as a result of unequal logistics, about 5 million kids die every year due to lack of access to basic medical products. And meanwhile, and I think most, you know, most people just sort of put their hands up and say, well, you know, that just must be the way things are. And you know, from our perspective, it seemed like, hey, you know, if we're going to build a radically new kind of logistic system, let's actually solve that problem once and for all. And that, that really is like the, the mission, the overarching mission of everything that Zipline does.
0: It's a really ambitious mission. I mean, I, I admire it and I can see you're, you're on your way to achieving it. And what you've achieved in Africa has really quite remarkable. But at the time that you were starting this out, you would have been probably in your mid-20s. And to have this kind of an overarching vision, at least to me as, as an older person, um, I'm not accustomed to people in their mid-20s having that kind of vision and that sort of, uh, you know, compassionate view of the world. Is, is there something in your background that contributed to you feeling this was something you wanted to do? You know, I guess
1: there are, uh, there are two things that I think were really big advantages for us and you know, neither made sound like a you know a real like competitive advantage in business to begin with, and I think those were probably empathy and naivete. Um, you know, on the empathy side, I, uh, after graduating from college in two thousand nine, got to spend a fair amount of time traveling the world, um, and just visiting, you know, getting outside of the U.S., seeing the kinds of problems that humanity faces, not just. You know, the problems that we face living, you know, on a coast in the country or in a nice city in the U.S. Um, gave me a sense for just like the scale of the problems that humanity are, is is facing, and a sense for how technology could have a huge impact if only it could be it could it could really be scalable and sustainable. Uh, and so I think just seeing this bigger picture was kind of a key part of understanding like, whoa, there are more important problems to work on than like Instagram for pets, for example. Um, and the, the second thing was when we were starting to work and, and think about, well, you know, could we, could we build like an autonomous system that would deliver products in this way? We, at that point, our backgrounds were in robotics and autonomy and software. And so we had a sense for what's possible technically, but we had no idea what it meant to build an aircraft or what it meant to like integrate with a national healthcare system. And when we spoke to most of the experts who have been working in national healthcare systems for the last, say, 20 or 30 or 40 years, they all told us this was a terrible idea and that it was never going to work. So, interestingly, you know, we, I think in many ways, like to do something this weird and radical, it took someone with no background in the subject, in, in the industry, because I think so many people in the industry have become jaded because they've seen so many things not work. Um, that I think it it maybe took us coming in with no context and no idea what we were doing to try something this weird and and, and, um, and then show that it, it can actually operate scalably and profitably.
0: When you were meeting with people and trying to raise capital for this project, did you have to kind of switch gears and find people who bought into that vision as opposed to investors who simply wanted to look at a linear path toward making a profit down the road?
1: You know, the key for zipline, I mean, building, getting, getting the system to where it is today, which, you know, today it's the largest commercial autonomous system on earth. We've flown over 2 million fully autonomous commercial miles, delivered over 200,000 vaccines, units of blood, and other critical medications. Um, like getting to that scale has required a lot of investment. I mean, it required us signing large contracts with the countries. It required us working with amazing partners like the Gates, like Gates Foundation and Global Alliance for Oxygen Initiative, it also relied on the company raising private capital. And when we were having those initial conversations, I, it was you know, there, there were very few, very few partners who believed in the idea in the early days. But the key for us was emphasizing that this is not about like philanthropy or for profit. I actually think that that like binary choice is possibly what's wrong with a lot of corporate America today. I, you know, Zipline has always been a for-profit mission, a mission-driven for-profit company. And we think that those are the kinds of companies that are going to change the world in the long run because you have a business model that can actually scale, but a mission that can inspire people and make sure that the company is doing the right thing um, for the world. And so we every every conversation with, with investors was really around making sure that they understood the mission, wanted to be part of the mission, and they understood how us being really diligent about things like you know, cost efficacy, unit economics, pricing, sales, getting, you know, every single country deployment to profitability as quickly as possible, how doing that was in direct service of our overall mission, which is to scale this service to every human on earth.
0: Journalists who cover technology fields often like writing about companies at the time that they're raising capital and at the time that they're kind of going and and successful. But those very early days when when, when life seems to be filled with challenges uh, is, is a phase that journalism tends to not cover. And I, I'm curious, the reason I'm setting it up that way is I'm wondering if you can share with us uh, some of the difficulties or at least one difficulty that was really, really posed a, a challenge as you were trying to get this company going and in particular trying to get it off the ground in Rwanda.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, the most obvious thing is the, the flip side of the naivete I was just mentioning. I mean, obviously, naivete is really bad and dangerous for a lot of reasons. And so, you know, when we, in 2015, when we were spending time uh, in Rwanda, signing that initial contract, we, we, we went in basically saying, hey, we, we want to deliver 160 different medical products to every hospital and health facility in the country, which ironically, four years later, that's exactly what we're contracted to do. But at the time, the Minister of Health smartly looked at us and she said shut up just do blood prove that you can do blood because that's a pretty big challenge in and of itself and so we said okay you know we'll, we'll do that we'll, we'll, we'll deliver blood and, and they wanted us to deliver to these 21 different hospitals and that and so we signed up for that and then for the first seven or eight months zipline served one hospital and everything you know we we were we were really struggling during that period because We did not know what it meant to fully integrate with a national healthcare system. We did not know how to integrate with air traffic control and a civil aviation regulator at national scale. We didn't know how to set up the right kinds of fulfillment center software for us to basically organize our efforts at the distribution center. We were figuring out how to get customers ordering reliably through a lot of different portals and interfaces. Um, And the vehicle in many ways was, you know, it was, I mean, we had never flown at scale before. So we were learning things from an engineering and technical standpoint that, that we needed to improve and basically incrementally change about the aircraft itself. So those first seven months were incredibly difficult. I mean, the team was pulling constant all-nighters. Um, our customer, the Ministry of Health, was unbelievably patient with us uh, as they were sort of, you know, if someone tells you they're going to serve 21 hospitals and you spend seven months serving one, I think probably less patient customers would have said, hey, you know, y- you, know you don't know what you're doing. Get the heck out of here. Uh, but they were they were patient. They gave us a chance to basically work through all these different issues and really get the system working reliably. After seven months, uh, it finally started working really, really well and smoothly for that one hospital. And then it took us a couple of years to roll out to the full 21 hospitals, basically fully serve the contract. And now, you know, a short 18 months after that, Zipline today is contracted to serve 2,500 hospitals and health facilities. So I think it's, really important to get that very first one right and take the time it was important for us to take the time we needed to go through that really um, tough growing pains of making all the incremental changes to the system that we need to make so that we were actually ready for the scale that the the company has experienced over the last uh, three to three and a half years.
0: You described at the outset a little bit that the aircraft looks kind of like a small plane Could you describe sort of the steps to a mission? What happens? You know, I I assume there's an inquiry from a hospital for a specific product. What happens from there?
1: Yeah, I mean, let's take a specific example. So, you know, in Ghana, uh, about a month ago, there was a a woman who came into a hospital uh, with a really, really bad snake bite, and this isn't you know not uncommon. Uh, She, when she arrived at the hospital, the hospital did not have the antivenin that was required. It antivenin is very expensive and and can be hard to store and so most hospitals and health facilities are not going to store it uh, but she was her her life was in danger she was in a critical condition the doctors immediately uh used a phone just a, a regular phone to uh to basically uh, uh I mean, the doctors can order either by by, by calling us or via text message or via WhatsApp. So we try to be, you know, as multi-platform as possible to make it really, really easy to access the service. Um, So in this case, the doctors ordered antivenin from our distribution center. We have four distribution centers in Ghana that serve about um, 13 million people. And uh, that distribution center immediately sprung into action. We picked the antivenin out of our stock because we have a small fulfillment center there that stocks these 160 different medical products, packed it into a box, the box is loaded into the, the belly of this plane. And then the plane is set on a launcher and one of our flight operators will essentially get permission from air traffic control and then launch the vehicle. And this whole process can happen in you know, two to four minutes. Wow. So once the, once the vehicle is launched, it, it basically accelerates off the end of this launcher from zero to hundred kilometers an hour in about a third of a second. The plane flies autonomously in a straight line uh, out to the hospital the hospital or health facility that placed the order. And so in this case, I think the order was made in something like 22 minutes. Uh, and the, when, when, when the plane arrives at the hospital, it will descend to about, you can think of it, 30 to 50 feet off the ground and then deliver into the mailbox. And the mailbox is just an imaginary rectangle on the ground that's about two parking spaces. Uh, and so... The, uh, the package itself has a really small paper parachute that ensures that the package gently, reliably lands in the mailbox of the hospital every single time. And the, the doctor was then able to grab that package, pull out the product, and administer it to the woman and, and save her life. And this is being done, you know, uh, high hundreds, if not thousands of times every single day now across Rwanda, Ghana, and the United States, day in, day out, in a way that people can rely on.
0: What's what does that feel like for you to know that this is your brainchild and a you know a company, a project that had its genesis in in an idea, and now it's something real and and that woman who was bitten by a snake is alive today because of your system. What's it like for you?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I would mention you know that's a specific story, but there are fifteen thousand other stories like that over the last few years. And one of the ways that ZipLine measures its impact is is by the number of deliveries we do that are truly life-saving, like an emergency delivery where a life is hanging in the balance. And I think it's easy to hit our head around one and hard to get our head around the number 15,000. But um, the other thing I would say is like Zipline has grown. I mean, it's much bigger than I am at this point. And the fact that Zipline has been able to do what we do, it you know, m- much more of our success is owed to the incredible operations teams that run our distribution centers every single day. And those those teams are entirely local. So these teams of Rwandans and Ghanaians and now North Carolinians are doing what some of the richest technology companies in the world have tried to do for five or six or seven years now and have not done successfully. And yet it is being done successfully at national scale um, by by these teams that I think have been, would, would have been drastically underestimated in any other technology context. Um, and yeah and, and you know the, the the last thing i would mention is that i the you know the last few years of of seeing the system scale in the way that it does i mean i think it it creates a very strong sense for the entire company of this strong moral imperative because right now we're only serving about 20 million people and there are billions of people who Uh, you know, have bad health outcomes or who have family members who lose their lives because they don't have access to this kind of a service. So, you know, we could pat ourselves on the back for the scale that we've achieved, but we spend a lot more time worrying about, like, how do we go faster? How do we make sure that, that, you know, uh, a billion people in the next three or four years have access to this kind of a service? And as quickly as possible, hopefully, you know, in the next 10 years, every single human on earth has access to it.
0: This is fairly new technology. Was it was it readily embraced by people on the ground in in Rwanda? Did people immediately understand and get the concept?
1: That's a really good question. When we were launching, you know we had no idea, we had no idea what we were doing, and no idea what to expect because what we were doing was completely unprecedented. No one had tried to build like an autonomous delivery system that would you know transform the way a, a, a hospital network worked. And I was personally quite worried because you just never know. I mean, you're kind of talking about having UFOs flying around you know, over these communities. I mean, who knows how that's going to be perceived. And so I was quite worried. And I would say that is one of the most mind-blowing things about what we do. It's been how super positively uh, the overall system has, has, has both impacted and then how, how positively it has been received. Because I think that's due to a lot of things. I mean, one is that most families at this point have a family member or know of someone whose life was either saved or made dramatically better or healthier because of the service. I think the other thing is that there's this sense of immense national pride. The fact that Rwanda today has, combined with Ghana, has the largest commercial autonomous system on earth, bigger than anything that you'd find in, in the United States or in Europe. I mean, it's, as you can imagine, that's something that um, every single member of the country is really, really proud of. And when you go and visit hospitals or health facilities or even schools, um, and you talk to people about the system, they'll say, well, our drones save lives. Our drones are, you know, flying throughout the sky every single day and, you know, making sure that people have access to medical products. And uh, a lot of people just say, look, it's a sky ambulance. It's not that complicated. So it's been amazing to me how quickly these communities are able to um, are, are basically, I mean, how quickly this basically just becomes the norm?
0: Have you had the opportunity in Rwanda to go and meet with a patient who has benefited from a zip line delivery? And if so, can you sh- can you share that?
1: Every day, practically, uh, we and we we have. In fact, a lot of um, a lot of times, we we we're always coordinating with the hospitals. You always want to know, you know, if it's an emergency delivery, how the patient's doing later. So we'll follow up with the doctor and. Find out, you know, how the surgery went or how the intervention went, and uh, a lot of times, you know, the doctor will will suggest they'll say basically this, this patient wants to meet the team, and so we actually do tours for patients at our distribution center if when when patients want to come by. We've had you know, moms who had postpartum hemorrhaging um, come by with their kids and and see, just you know, take a tour of the distribution center and, and see the other end of it, so that they understand like how the delivery was made. And um, that's something we love doing. And it's, it's a pretty powerful experience for every single person on the team who is involved in making that delivery and they get to meet, meet a patient who's coming in and wanting to say, thank you.
0: I was looking at your LinkedIn profile and you touched on this briefly at the outset, uh, but it states on your profile, our ultimate goal is to put each human on the planet within a 15 to 30 minute delivery of any essential medical product they need no matter where they live, is that still kind of the mission? And is it a, is it a realistic goal? That
1: is still the mission. And yes, it, I think it's a very realistic goal. I think it's inevitable. I, I just don't think that we can be a, a moral society. I don't think you can like look yourself in the eye if you see the level of wealth that, you know, pockets of humanity are achieving, but then we pretend like this problem is unsolvable or not worth solving. This problem is definitely worth solving and it can be solved in a very cost-effective way with new technology and i think that what we've demonstrated so far in <clears throat> i think you could have argued that point maybe four years ago but at this point you know rwanda has has one of the poorest countries on earth been the first country to achieve universal access to all health products for every single person in the country and so I just don't think anybody can look at that and say, well, Rwanda can do it, but we cannot. You know, I, I think that that is a really powerful precedent showing how for a very reasonable upfront investment, a country can achieve universal healthcare access, not just for people who live in cities, not just for people who are wealthy, but for every person. We really very we believe so strongly that uh, where you live should not determine whether you live. And yeah, I I think that at this point, the cat's out of the bag. I mean, anybody who is familiar with what is happening in Rwanda today, I think would would say it's inevitable.
0: I understand there's been some recent news that Zipline is going to be doing some trials with Walmart uh, in the U.S. before long. What can you share about that?
1: Yeah, well, so one of the cool things generally about, you know, the last year has been that a lot of different health systems... In the U.S., we're starting to hear about and look at the work we were doing in Rwanda and Ghana, and said, "Hey, we, we want to do as we want to do the exact same thing here." In the U.S., some of the use cases are a bit different. Our work is more focused around extending the reach of the hospital system into the home. Uh, there are pretty good logistics between hospitals and health facilities, but many of these healthcare facilities, especially in a COVID-19 world where it's suddenly no longer safe for elderly or, or immunocompromised people to be going in and getting care in a hospital every single one of these systems is trying to figure out how to reconfigure itself so that it can deliver directly to the home uh, and so we actually launched with Navant healthcare a big hospital system in north carolina in march and we've been doing the longest beyond visual line of sight flights in u.s history every single day since then uh, we began by delivering COVID 19 products so we've been a part a big part of their uh, response to the pandemic and our plan is to expand that to all of their facilities in North Carolina uh, by the end of the year. So I think they have something like 40 or 50 different facilities in the greater Charlotte area. And and a few weeks ago, we announced this partnership with Walmart to basically focus on their health and wellness business and then expanding in the future into general merchandise. But exactly the same thing, basically expanding the reach of, um, of, of Walmart, basically so that anybody who is at home and wants to get if someone's feeling sick or someone wants to buy an off the, off the over-the-counter uh, product and you don't want to go into the store, you can basically place an order on your phone and deliver it instantly uh, to your door. So we really think that this is like an overall wave. It's a tidal shift that's happening in logistics. And um, obviously, we're super excited about what we're doing with Walmart because it's a chance to, to achieve national scale in one of the biggest countries on earth. Um, and, and we think it's going to have a big impact on, on people's lives and, and also on people's health.
0: I'd like to ask a couple of brief personal questions just as we get close to wrapping it it up. You did phenomenally well in school, but you've also been a professional rock climber. What type of rock climbing is it that you do?
1: Um, Well, when I graduated from college in 2009, I I had a chance, basically a few months later, I had a chance to go and climb full-time. I had a, a couple sponsors who were willing to, you know, buy plane tickets for me to go travel. And that seemed like a totally cool adventure and something that I I, I shouldn't pass up. And so I actually uh, quit my job at the time and, um, you know, packed my bags and went. I, I was, I was focused on bouldering and sport climbing, which for people who are familiar with, you know, rock climbing, that, that basically is the more like athletic and physically challenging version, rather than the more of the, like dangerous versions, like <laughs> drag climbing or mountaineering. Um, and so I got to travel to a lot of different parts of the world um, relatively early. And, and uh, just, you know, it was extremely unfancy. I mean, I lived out of my car for a year. So I think that, you know, although it was unfancy, it was an awesome opportunity to figure out, I, mean, I think the biggest thing, one of the biggest things I took away, obviously, other than the, the, empathy and understanding like global problems that I mentioned earlier. The other thing I took away was that was a pretty darn happy year living out of my car. And I kind of realized, wow, you know, I can be really happy with basically nothing. Hmm. And in some ways that's been an empowering as an entrepreneur because you kind of realize you don't actually need that much. Like, you don't have, yeah, you know, I, I felt like, Hey, I can go do something. I can work on something risky because if it doesn't work, you know, I can always go back to this and this is pretty darn good. So I think probably you I'm sure you've heard this term golden handcuffs people who get used to fancy lifestyles and therefore feel the need to work jobs that they aren't passionate about and uh, that was a super freeing experience for me because it made me realize that it's totally fine to take risk because um money wasn't really the thing that was making me happy
0: if we look out in the future the world of autonomous aerial vehicles is growing so rapidly we're even seeing testing right now of passenger carrying drones, sort of the Ubers of the sky. What do you envision if you look ahead five years, 10 years into ZipLine's future? What do you think you'll be doing?
1: You know, I actually struggle to look out two or three years. So 10 years is a little more difficult. But, you know, the reality right now is that we, we are, it's like 1 a.m. for this industry of automating logistics and there is so far to go before we start thinking about anything else and as i mentioned we also feel like there's no time i mean one of the the flip side of the really cool exciting you know the story i shared for example of the thing i didn't share was we actually it was that day that that woman came into the hospital with the snake bite that we had onboarded that hospital into our network wow and we onboarded that hospital one day later that woman very possibly would not have survived. And that actually weighs on us because we know that these things are happening at hundreds of thousands of hospitals and health facilities every single day that ZipLine does not serve. So the main thing that we focus on is just figuring out how do we go faster? How do we stay agile? How do we scale up the service as quickly as possible? Um, How do we set strong regulatory precedents so that you know, when we launch in a country we can launch at national scale serving every single hospital and health facility uh, and how do we do an amazing job of of serving doctors and nurses so that uh, you know they 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 tell others how powerful the system is so we're, we're right now it's like hard for us to imagine really the next two to five years for us just looks like scaling as fast as humanly possible to reach every single hospital and health facility on earth um, and 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 then obviously the you know, the other big component of that and what you see us starting to do in the U.S. is around extending not just to hospitals and health facilities but also directly to homes. And we think that that's especially given what we're seeing with the pandemic that is the future of healthcare. Uh, it's it's deli- it's delivering things in a way that's way more convenient for the patient and way safer for the patient. Uh, and so those are really like the two big undertakings that that we're focused on over the coming three to five years.
0: That's that sounds fantastic, and I I wish you the very best of luck with this. Now, now this sound, Keller, which you haven't heard yet on this, that means we're hitting the last couple of minutes and and kind of a little rapid fire round where I'm just going to ask you a few fast questions, and I'm just looking for a few fast answers. What is the best thing about Rwanda? The people. <laughs> I think I think uh, I know you want fast answers, but I, I think I mean
1: what I would say is that I. We have found the people we've been able to hire and work with in Rwanda to be some of the most impressive, trustworthy, hardworking people on planet Earth. And I think a lot of that has to do with the history of the country and what they've been through uh, over the last, you know, three decades. It's amazing to me how like strength can come out of great pain. And uh, yeah, that's a very special country for that reason.
0: If you weren't in this line of work, what do you think you'd be doing? (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's almost, it's, it's almost impossible for me to imagine. You know, it's like asking someone, well, if you didn't have that child, like what would your other child be like? <laughs> <laughs> it's like you can really only like the, the level of love and commitment is quite high. So it's, it's kind of a hard question for me to answer.
0: Fair enough. What has working with Zipline and taking this whole project from, you know, this tiny seed of an idea to what it has become today, what has this experience taught you about yourself?
1: I think probably the biggest thing is that, you know, to, to achieve something meaningful, to achieve something at scale, uh, you need, you need people around you. You need, you need teams of extraordinary people. And that means that the company has to grow bigger than you, has to be, has to be bigger than, um, you know, whoever starts something. I mean, I think that sometimes there's this instinct to try to like maintain control or to try to maintain the sense that the thing is yours. And I think one thing that we've really realized over the last, uh, over the last couple of years is that as Zipline has grown, it's, it's actually really, really good that it's owned to the degree that it is by the countries that it's owned, that it's driven to the degree that it is by all of, you know, our local teams. And I think that that that's, I guess, the biggest, the biggest takeaway for me, the biggest learning is like, that the best thing I can do is just make sure that the the, the team at Zipline shares the same values and is driven by the same mission, and that we continue to hire extraordinary people, if we can do those things. I think we will succeed in achieving the mission I
0: described. And finally, what is the one thing you look forward to doing when the pandemic is over that you can't do right now?
1: flying to Rwanda and Ghana and spending time with our operations teams. It's, it's actually been, you know, nine months where, where I have not been able to visit them. And yeah, that's really difficult. Um, prior to the pandemic, I was over there every month or two. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's amazing to me how all of our operations teams have basically stepped up to the challenge and have actually, I mean, we've, we've actually doubled the scale of our deliveries since the pandemic started in order to support health systems response. And, uh, it's amazing to me that those teams have done that with no support from me or the rest of our global team, because we actually can't get into the countries where we operate.
0: What you do is really such important and good work. And technically it's executed so well that honestly, I really can't wait to see what, uh, what you and Zipline accomplish in the next, uh, in the coming eight years. Keller Renato, CEO, founder of Zipline. Thank you very, very much for what you do and for sharing your inside story. Thanks so much. It's true. I so much admire everything that Keller Renato stands for and everything that he has accomplished. And of course, I can't get it out of my head that he's just 33. And Zipline, of course, is much younger. Robots are great when we build them with purpose and vision. And Zipline makes flying robots that save lives every single day. In my mind, and I hope in yours, that's awesome. I'm Scott Simmy. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe and share with a friend. Because there are more Inside Stories to come.
1: The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates or subsidiaries.